today to worship with you. Uh, I'm almost always at the Gray Campus, and um, I've been here a few times for events at night and, and uh, when we've combined services here, but this is my first Sunday morning experience at the Johnson City Campus, so shame on me for that, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here today. Next time I come back, it'll be a time when I'm not preaching, maybe. Um, I'm here today to talk to you about the qualifications of, of church elders that are found in 1 Timothy 3. And let me just begin by saying that term, elder, is uh, something I'm, it's a biblical title. It's something I'm very comfortable with at this point in time, but it's still a little strange to me, uh, the title, elder. The first time I ever heard the word elder as uh, used in a title was uh, when I was in college. I went to school at the University of Tennessee. I co-opted here at Eastman Chemical, and one semester I was up here working. I had two roommates, and uh, one Saturday afternoon at our door was uh, two gentlemen uh, dressed in white collared shirts with ties, and uh, they, uh, they, were, they were Mormons, and they knocked on our door, and they asked to come in and meet with us, and we acknowledged that, and so they walked in, and I don't remember their last names, but the first guy introduced himself to me, and he said, hello, my name's uh, Elder Smith. And I said, how you doing, Elder? My name's David. And the next guy said, hey, my name's Elder Jones. And then I started thinking, I thought Elder was a strange name, and then I thought the fact that both of them would have the same first. <clears throat> so I said, uh, I realized at that point they're giving me their title, not their name. And I thought, now that's strange. These guys were my age. They were in college. And I thought, what, what allowed them to carry the title of elder? Um, and so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that today. I don't, I don't know that they were using the title properly. But um, by the way, we had a long discussion that afternoon uh, I, of course, was of the heritage of, of the Baptist faith and doctrine. My, I had one of my roommates that was a devout Catholic, had another one that was a Lutheran, and we had two Mormons. And uh, it didn't matter which topic we covered, we were in a five-way debate with each other. <laughs> and it was the most unproductive uh, time that I had spent. But um, I've learned a lot in, in the years about how to handle situations a little better. But that was a little chaotic. Well, if you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, remember again, here's Timothy. He's a young man. He's been called to pastor in a pagan Roman city we know as Ephesus to a people that he's only known for a short period of time. And Paul's writing him a letter of encouragement and instruction on how he should lead the ministry of this local church. One of the problems that Timothy faced was the problem of unfit leaders in that church, which is why we believe Paul took the time to devote what we know as 1 Timothy 3 to lay out the qualifications of both bishops, pastors, elders, and uh, deacons. Who or what is an elder? Let's answer that question first. An elder <clears throat> is a spiritually mature man who has a calling from the Holy Spirit on his life to shepherd God's family, whose calling is confirmed by God's people, and who is qualified to lead a local family of faith. Some of you may know there's actually three words in Scripture that speak of the same position, leadership position in a church. One is elder, 
This is what I would say is this describes who the person is. They are a spiritual, mature man. Not necessarily elderly, but someone who is spiritually mature and wise. Then another title that's used in Scripture is the word bishop or the word overseer. That's actually what we find in 1 Timothy 3. It describes what this person does. They provide oversight to a local church body. And then finally, the one we're probably most familiar with is the term pastor or shepherd. This describes how a person leads. They feed, they lead, they guard. And the thing we're going to focus on today is they serve as an example to the church body. Elders, bishops, pastors. The Bible always refers to this office in the plural, which is why in our church we have a plurality of elders, not just one. Some are on staff, some are not. Um, three that are here today, myself, Charles Chandler, Larry Durham, are three that are not on staff, but we serve as elders and provide oversight. All three of these words that speak of the same office come together in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 3. You'll see that on the screen. And I've underlined some key words so that you can see the difference here. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, this is Peter speaking, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock, that's the word for pastor, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, that is the word for bishop or overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so we ask ourselves the question, what do elders do? And we could spend some time talking about that, but I've, I've got in your notes and on the outline here, elders are called to shepherd God's people like Jesus, so that through the work of the Holy Spirit, they might be conformed in the, the image of Jesus Christ. Elders are to serve as examples of spiritual maturity to the local church. One thing that is clear from 1 Timothy 3 an elder is someone who cannot say, do as I say and not as I do. They have to be examples that are worthy to be followed. And so where I want to take the text today is, is, is this. Here's where I want to take it. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, one of the questions that is being answered that I think is going to be applicable to all of us in the room is God is giving us a set of qualifications to be able to judge, to discern whether or not someone has reached a level of spiritual maturity that they should be qualified to hold the office of a church elder. So if you were to ask God the question, what types of things do you look for to determine spiritual maturity in the life of a believer, you would turn to places like 1 Timothy 3 and you would get an answer. That is why you look at this text and you don't see a list of things that might be written for a typical corporation today. You don't see things like you need to have vision, you need to have administrative skills, you need to have a high IQ, you need to have humor, you need to have good oratory skills, you need to have elegance and diplomacy. None of those things are mentioned. Those are human characteristics that might equip a person to be successful in a secular situation. But the issue here for church leadership is not primarily leadership skills. The issue here is character qualities. 
that allow them to effectively serve as spiritual examples to the rest of the church body. That means the standard that God's setting in 1 Timothy 3 is not just a standard for a church leader. It's the standard for all God's people. The purpose is not to create a set of criteria to which some aspire to but not anybody else. The purpose of having this criteria to which elders must meet those qualifications is so that they will be examples for everybody to live up to those same criteria and those same qualifications. We get some insight in 1 Timothy 3 into what it means to God to define spiritual maturity. So what I want to do today is describe these qualities and ask each of us to assess our own level of spiritual maturity against 1 Timothy 3. We're going to read this text. We're going to walk through it as quickly as I can. We're going to, uh, I'm going to ask you along the way, I'm going to put out some questions just to get you thinking about your own personal relationship with the Lord and your own spiritual growth. And you ask, if you will be on assignment for me, you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and mind and identify any gaps in your own walk with the Lord that may call you to a place of repentance and obedience. Sound like a plan? Is everybody okay with that? If you're okay with that, say, go Vols. <laughs> I had to work that into the sermon somehow. Some of you, all, well, if you're, if you're okay with that and you're not a volunteer fan, just say, amen. Amen. All right. I'll include everybody. All right. First Timothy three verses one and two. Let's get right into our text. Uh, Carol read the text that, uh, and I'm somehow in the book of Acts, so that's not going to help us. First Timothy chapter three, verses one and two. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires to position of overseer, he desires a good work. One thing you notice from verse 1, it's not necessarily that a man should desire this position, but if he does desire, he's desiring something that's a good work. This is not an ungodly ambition for power. It's rather a compulsion and a desire for service and for sacrifice. I'll call your attention again to verse 2 before we get into these qualifications. Again, the word, there's no loopholes here. The Bible's clear. It says, he must be. He must be. It's important to God before we place someone in a position of church leadership that they meet the qualifications that God sets forward to define spiritual maturity. And the must be is there because if they're not that, then they can't be examples to the rest of the local body. That's why it's so important. First word we come to, in verse 2 is the word above, or the phrase above reproach. This is, a, this is a great one to start with. This is kind of an overarching sign of spiritual maturity. You could almost put all the other qualifications and character qualities that are listed under this. It doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean they have no obvious sinful defect in their character. There's no damaging charges that could be brought against a person's character or conduct that would stick and have merit. This is a life that would stand up under an impartial examination. 
And so one of the questions that I want us to think, all of us think about as we think about how, what is our level of spiritual growth and maturity is to ask ourselves this, is there any person who has a justifiable complaint against our character or conduct? Whether that be a current practice or obvious defect in our character or conduct that needs to be corrected or whether it be a past sin or wrong that caused harm to someone else that has not yet been resolved. Here's an example of a conversation we could have as we were evaluating a candidate for a church er, uh, elder and and maybe testing the quality of, of, of a person's life and their level of spiritual maturity. Let's pretend this person's name is John, and I say, John, is there any sinful act currently or in your past that has, been brought, that has brought harm to another person and has never been resolved? And John may say, well, you know, years ago before I was saved, um, I cheated a guy out of some money and never did make it right. So as, I, as we're evaluating that person and their level of spiritual maturity, one thing we could say when under the term above reproach, well, John, if that's true, And that's not been resolved. If that person were alive today and knew you were being considered for a position of church leadership, they could justifiably bring a charge against your character and conduct, even though it had happened years ago. John, you need to go back. You need to try to find this person. You need to do everything you can to make it right so that you can live above reproach. John says, does it matter that this happened before I was even saved? Before I even had the transforming power of God working in my life? It doesn't matter. I would ask you to consider in Scripture, there was a swindler. He was a tax collector by the name of Matthew. He was not a believer. He was cheating fellow Jews out of money. One day he was saved. And if you'll remember the text, the first thing the Lord told him to do, he said, you go back and make it right with all those people you've cheated. There wasn't an argument of, well, that was before I was saved. Why did God, why did the Lord tell him to do that? Because he wanted a person he was calling in Matthew to be a person that was above reproach. Wherein you have the power to do it, you go back. And you make right those things that have brought harm to another person's life. Is there any person who has a justifiable complaint against our character or conduct, past or present? That's challenge number one. If so, I would call on all of us, change our character, change our conduct. If it's in the past, seek for forgiveness and move forward with a life that can be lived above reproach back to first timothy 1 verse 2 the next phrase we find is the phrase husband of one wife these are this is an interesting phrase these are three greek words which when put together literally can be interpreted either a one wife husband or a one woman man this is a describing a moral character that goes much deeper than just checking a person's marital status. It's a measure of our faithfulness. 
It's an ex- a measure of our exclusive devotion consistently over time. We know, we know this is not primarily dealing with marital stat- status, if for no other reason, because Paul, who referred to himself as an elder, was a single man. By the way, you may be interested to know, we'll get to this in a couple of chapters, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, when it's talking about widows and, and some qualifications for a widow to be, well, I don't want to interpret this now, I'll leave that to Derek, but to be put on a list, um, it says, let a, 1 Timothy 5, 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years age, and then it says, having been the wife of one husband. Exact same phrase in reverse. It says of that widow, one of the qualifications it's looking for is that she be a one-man woman. This means, therefore, a man who has remarried after the death of a spouse could certainly still possess the qualities of a one-woman man. It could be, it would require some discussion, but it could be that a man who remarried because his first wife committed adultery and ran off with another man could still possess the qualities of a one-woman man. I just put in your notes and on the screen the question of this, in what ways do we demonstrate today that we are undoubtedly a one-woman man or a one-man woman? And so this is one of those areas that, again, maybe like the example I gave in above reproach, you know, there... uh, by the way, by the way, this is maybe more important to say even than what I'm about to. The reason this moral character is deeper than just marital status, and you all know this, you've seen it before in lives, you could be married to the same person for 50 years and still not be a one-woman man. This is getting at the issue of your character. Do you have eyes only for the person that you're betrothed or married to. There are a lot of flirtatious spouses out there that don't possess this character. Their marital status says maybe they do, but their, their behavior says they do not. But like above reproach, this is one of those areas, if you look back on your life and you say, well, maybe there's some examples in the past where I've failed to demonstrate that I am a one-man woman or a one-woman man, I would challenge you the same thing I did earlier. If there's, any, if there's any wrong that can be righted, if there's any forgiveness that can be requested, ask it and move forward, move forward, resolved in the power of God to forever be a one-man woman or a one-woman man. And the reason we hold that out is because what we're saying this morning That is the standard that God expects of a spiritually mature believer. That is the standard. Let's move forward. Next phrase that we come to is the word sober-minded. Sober-minded describes a person who is alert, they're watchful, they're vigilant, they're clear-headed, someone who has a balanced and controlled lifestyle. It's interesting, the Greek word here when you look it up, literally means unmixed with wine, which is why you get kind of that phrase sober-minded. That's a subject we'll tackle in just a minute. But this is a word picture that puts you in mind of someone who is always in a state of being able to think clearly. They are able to remove anything from their life that prevents them from thinking clearly. 
The other word that's used here right after this is the word self-controlled, which describes someone with a well-disciplined mind. It's the mind of Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. That's the controlled and well-disciplined mind. A person with self-control is a person who guards their mind to give them the ability to think clearly. So sober-minded and self-controlled are linked together. So the question I put in, in your notes and on the screen, sign of spiritual maturity, what are we doing to ensure that our mind is free from the influence of anything that would impact our ability to think clearly? Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. I'll move a little quicker here. Uh, respectable carries the idea of orderly, a person who brings order to their life, reflecting the character of God who is not the author of confusion. The Bible tells us that. Or of chaos, but of order. So I put simply in your notes, is there order and purpose to your life? That would be the, the meaning behind the word respectable. Next word is hospitable. This is an interesting uh, Greek study of words. The word is uh, philozenos. Zenos means stranger. Philo, coming from the word philio, brotherly love, means to love. So the Greek word here means to love strangers. To love strangers. Sometimes we talk about somebody that's hospitable. We talk about them always having friends over their house or doing things, you know, that uh, make them friendly. And that's really what they are. They're friendly. But that's not what this word means. This is not about having friends over. This is, this is a word about loving somebody who's not your friend. This is what this word means, hospitable. This is all about strangers. This is opening yourself up to people who you really don't know, who don't know you, and sometimes using that as a channel for, as a great avenue for evangelism. So I put in your notes, sign of spiritual maturity, how many people do we demonstrate love to that at the time were strangers to us? The next word in 1 Timothy uh, 1-2 is apt to teach. Here's maybe, maybe the only qualification given in the, in the entire list that relates specifically to the function of a pastor. It means skilled in teaching. Uh, it's odd that we find this phrase right in the middle of a list of moral character qualities except for one thing we note. If you teach one thing and live another, you are not a skilled teacher. So it's, it's part of being... Uh, possessing that moral character. But in another sense, we're a church of disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And if you're making disciples, you have to have some ability to teach the person that you're making a disciple of. Um, so all of us could, could apply to that. All right, let's move on to verse 3. Um, in the ESV translation, you see the phrase or the word drunkard, not a drunkard. Some translations will give, give it this way, not given to wine. So this is interesting. This is a person who carries with them the reputation of one who drinks alcohol. This is the, this is the reputation that goes with them that we are told that shouldn't go with a person that's spiritually mature. You can go back to the word sober-minded, and we saw there the idea of unmixed wine. But here it's another idea. There it had to do with having a clear head, being able to think clearly. Here it has more to do with the idea of associations. This is a person 
that doesn't hang around places that are known habitats for those that like to drink alcohol. They don't find their place of recreation. I'm not talking about evangelical purposes, but they don't find their place of recreation in taverns and saloons and bars. Now, this statement does not go so far as to strictly forbid any consumption of alcohol, but I will say it's certainly true that a person who refrains from alcohol completely would most easily feel the standard, fulfill the standard that is being given. I'll just say while we're on this subject, somehow, somehow, in our discussion in the Christian culture today and in our quest, maybe it's a quest, I don't know, to prove that the Bible does not forbid any consumption of alcohol, I just want to remind us so that we don't forget or fail to emphasize the warnings that we have in Scripture on this subject. It's still true what Proverbs 20 verse 1 says. Wine is a mocker. It was then, it is today. Strong drink is raging. It was then, it is today. And, what, and whosoever is deceived thereof is not wise. That's Proverbs 21. Proverbs 23. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling and wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go and seek even mixed wine. And then listen to this word of instruction. Don't look upon the wine when it's red, when it gives its color in the cup, and when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. And thine eyes shall behold strange things. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. Alcohol is a contributor to a lot of destructive things, not only in our world, but in the life of a believer. There's a lot of sins, I believe, that are committed that likely wouldn't have been committed apart from the influence of alcohol. So I would just say in this text of spiritual mature Christians, this is someone who, when you size up them and their reputation, you don't associate <clears throat> alcohol with them when you think of their reputation. This is not someone that says, boy, for that person to have a good time, they're going to have a drink in their hand. That wouldn't be the reputation of someone who would have the spiritual maturity we're talking about. Now, so I put in your notes, signs of spiritual maturity is any part of our reputation built <clears throat> on our association with alcohol. Back to 1 Timothy 1.3, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome. This describes a person who reacts to, a, to difficult situations calmly not, and gently, not violently. Literally means not a giver of blows. They don't hold grudge. They pardon human failures. They're not argumentative about everything. Signs of spiritual maturity. Question for you. How do you respond? How do we respond when someone personally offends us? Not a lover of money is next in 1 Timothy 3. Someone who is motivated by the love of God not, and his people, not money or any material possession. Someone is generous with what they steward. The question for you, in what ways do we consistently demonstrate generosity with the possessions God has entrusted to us? Next, manage his household well, 1 Timothy 4. Someone who is a godly leader in the home, a great testing ground for someone 
to be a leader in the church. Something all of us should aspire to is our, in our spiritual growth is to be good leaders, godly leaders in the home. Um, a lot I could say about that. I'm going to move on. Sign of spiritual maturity. The question for you, what are some specific things we are doing to lead our family spiritually? I will say, by the way, managing your household, does in, it, it's people, and it's also steward of the resources and finances in your home as well. Um, and I will also say that a person in the home who may, for a season, rebel against authority is also a test of how someone manages their household. How does that person lead in an environment where someone is rebelling? Uh, it may not, their rebellion may not be a reflection of the leadership. Actually, it may be a test of the leadership. And so, what are some specific things we do in those situations? Verse 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy, not a recent convert, not someone who was recently saved. Now, this is interesting. Why? Why not someone who was recently saved? Well, you could say because they're, they hadn't reached the level of spiritual maturity yet to be qualified. Yes. But really what, what the Scripture gets to in this case is, I don't want someone that's a recent convert because they're going to be tempted to have pride. And, and really the character quality that's on display here is the character quality of humility. Humility. And uh, the Bible says lest they be lifted up and fall into the same condemnation of the devil. I think what that means is they're going to fall in the same trap that Satan himself did. And, and you know the history of Satan is he was lifted himself up and said, I will ascend, and he was cut down. Pride was the sin of Satan. <clears throat> and pride could easily be the sin of someone who hasn't developed the spiritual maturity of humility at this point in their, in their walk with the Lord. That's why we wouldn't take anyone in this world that was amazingly successful in business or any other dimension and bring them into a church and then get saved and think, well, they'd be a great church leader. No, they would be a terrible church leader at that point in time. They would be someone that would be uh, uh, potentially tempted in this same area. 1 Timothy 1.7, well thought of by outsiders. <clears throat> Here's just a reputation outside the church of being a godly person. This maybe ties back in that first thing we had around above reproach. Uh, so I just put in your notes and in the, in the screen you'll see the question you can ask yourself, what kind of testimony do we have with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with others in our community? So that's a lot to chew on. Um, I would just, I would just uh, hope, surely, as I've encountered this scripture through the week and thought through it myself, surely there's something here for all of us to take away and say, uh, God, I need your help and I need your power to live up to the standard that you have set to define what spiritual maturity looks like in my life. I hope that you don't go through texts like this and think, I think I'm good. I like where I'm at. I hope there's nobody like that. Surely. Surely. And so my challenge for you today is what is it out of that list that would at this point in time be the thing that you need to pursue the most to be on the path of pursuing righteousness 
and a mature believer in Christ. And of course, I would have to say, you can't do that on your own power. Uh, you've got to have the power of God working in your life. If you're here today and do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, let me just say one thing. First of all, I'll say again, this is the character that God's called his believers to. Don't, don't not pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ because you see people calling themselves Christians who are not pursuing that type of character. Don't not come to Christ because of hypocrites. Uh, come to Christ. He is calling you to this type of standard of living. And if you need any help with what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I wish you would come and see me today or any other member of this church or leader in, in this church here at the Johnson City campus. Now I'm going to just close in the next uh, five minutes or so by calling up to the stage one of our uh, elders, Mr. Larry Durham, someone that we are pleased to call an elder at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. And the rest of our text deals with not elders but deacons. And uh, I've just got a few questions I wanted to ask Larry about deacons. You'll notice again the, the, the character qualities are almost identical between the two. Um, so it tells you something else about God repeating this same theme and message. Uh, but, but Larry, first of all, welcome, welcome to the platform. You. You're probably it. here a lot. Um, let me ask you this question. What, what is the biblical role of a deacon? So the biblical role of a deacon, uh, first of all, I would point you to Acts 6, uh, the first several chapters of Acts 6. And so uh, within that, uh, you have the apostles uh, leading out very early in, in the church uh, history. Uh, and run into some challenges. Um, a number of individuals in the church uh, feeling neglected, feeling disengaged, maybe disenfranchised, dare I say it. Um, and the elders are wrapped up in preaching and teaching and praying over the people, and you only can do so much. So they chose seven men to go about leading the people in acts of service. And so, first of all, when you look in, in the terminology of deacon, you see the term um, servant or minister. So basically, if you think about, you know, uh, David just uh, taught us through uh, the elders being overall oversight, leadership, shepherding uh, the church body, the deacons come alongside the elders fighting for that unity, fighting for by way of leading in the service. Now, all of us in here who are called believers in Jesus Christ, we're all called, challenged to serve in some capacity, but the deacons are leading in the service of uh, edifying the body and keeping the body unified. So that would be the, the primary biblical highlights that I would share for deacons. And if you wanted just to highlight quickly, I mean, the qualifications for a deacon? Yeah, so qualifications similar to what we mm -hmm. saw in the first, what was um, verses 1 through 7 for elder, they're very, very similar to deacon. Uh, you'll see the spiritual testing, um, being faithful, blameless. Again, as I was reminded, so I went through the elder process about a year ago, uh, talking through the fact that it's not sinless, you know, none of us are, but blameless, as you, mm -hmm. I thought, very well unpacked. Um, but also being individuals that are seeking to uh, guard uh, the unity, you know, keeping false teaching and other aspects away. So when you delve into uh, verses 8 through 13, I believe, mm -hmm. you'll see very specific qualifications, very, very similar to the elders. Uh, again, elders, oversight, uh, the specific a uh, couple uh, words within the verse you mentioned, the ability to teach, you know, called out specifically with elders that you don't see uh, relative to the deacons, but very, very analogous to the roles, um, all, of, all focused on unifying the church for the glory of the Lord. Yeah. 
All right. So you want to mention uh, briefly again who our deacons are? I will. And, yeah. Um, Maybe how they're organized yes, a little bit? Yes, So um, the, the organization of our deacons, a couple of different words, care, um, helps, and truly uh, seeking to meet the needs of individuals. So as you think about, uh, if you've been with our church for any period of time, uh, you will hear us time and time again say that we view life groups as the main mode of living life together, the ups, the downs, the highways and byways. Uh, but a number of us, uh, for one reason or another, um, are not plugged into life groups, uh, maybe for a season uh, maybe through different um, challenges or uh, different abilities um, or different locations. Uh, so that's where the deacons come alongside and minister to individuals, short-term needs, um, guidance on repair people, uh, practical needs, um, uh, bereavement. The list goes on and on. So they are the ones. They're not doing everything, nor should any of us seek to do everything. We all have a role. They're the ones that are leading the service to allow for the body to be edified, uh, that he will be glorified. Um, so you'll see some structures there. If you want more information, uh, TCB Church, I think, dash deacons uh, is what you'll find online. That's the organization of the church. Uh, the process, very similar to the elder process, again, that, that I went through uh, last August, uh, is that based upon the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, uh, we reach out to the church and say, hey, we're going through the process of um, considering individuals to add as deacons. Please send those names of men that you view as meeting the requirements in First uh, Timothy 3, uh, 8, as I mentioned. Um, and we will vet those individuals, go through a process of engaging with them, having discussions as a group of elders to the individuals one-on-one, -on -one, and truly delving into very similar to a number of your questions. I can remember vividly a number of questions regarding um, how we lead our lives individually. Once we go through that process, we bring those men that we feel, based upon observing them, based upon uh, testing them against the scriptures in front of the church bodies say, these are the individuals that you brought to us. We've gone through a process, and we believe are biblically qualified to serve as deacons. And we'll bring those individuals in front of the church to affirm them and ordain them specifically for service here at the church. So I want to, at this point, call out one individual in the back, Ben McNabb. Uh, he is our, we're going to have you stand up, Ben. It won't hey, be man. too long, won't be too awkward. Uh, so Ben McNabb, uh, some of you may also know Joel Mears, Joel and Beth Mears. Joel is also uh, our other deacon here uh, at the John City campus. They're traveling this week, so we weren't able to meet with us. Um, so I want to recognize Ben yeah. and thank him for his service. And we're going to, um, yes, we can clap for Ben. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, so, so, so Ben, uh, gosh, within the last six to nine-ish months, uh, joined our leadership body as a deacon and really appreciative for not just his um, leadership and sacrifice, but we know that it's a family. Uh, and he's got a very strong wife, Candy, and uh, great kids um, there, uh, loving on the people that the Lord brings our way. So uh, with that, I'll lead into a time of prayer over yeah, not just be great. Um, being uh, in his role as a deacon, but all of our deacons. We've got another eight or nine other deacons at our great campus uh, that, again, are serving the entire body. So don't uh, look as though if you can't get a hold of any one of us that just because it's Tri-Cities, Gray versus Johnson City, remember, we say we are one church in two locations. So remember, we are one body within the greater C church of the Lord. So I'll pray over us, lead us to our next time, and thank you again yeah. for uh, this conversation. Uh, dear Lord, uh, we come to you uh, today uh, thanking you for um, the words that have been shared through uh, David. Uh, just unpacking biblically, Lord, uh, specifically uh, the qualifications for uh, elder and then also as well for deacon. And Lord, we thank you for um, the sacrifices of the McNabb family as a whole, and then specific specifically um, for um, 
being, stepping out, and faithfully serving this body and your people, Lord. Uh, we pray for all of our deacons, wherever they may be, and their, their families, Lord. We pray for their protection, Lord. Uh, th th this is a busy uh, life that we lead, Lord. Whatever we're doing, school, work, volunteerism, Lord, just, just busy. And even within the, the church realm, the spiritual realm, there's business, Lord. But you want us to do and focus on uh, that's what's most important, and that is loving your son and seeking to be more like him every single day. Anything that gets in the way of that, Lord, we need to assess how we truly prioritize that, Lord. So I thank you for those uh, 10, 11, 12, you know, men uh, that do serve faithfully, have served, uh, to include uh, Ben and Joel Mears uh, here at our campus, uh, and how you are working in through them, Lord. Strengthen them, guide them, uh, continue to unify us as one body under your leadership, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Amen. <laughs>